Please open your copy of God's Word to the Revelation to John. Revelation 3, 7, and God's Word says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What joy we ought to have to be able to begin every week Worshiping God together. Praising His name together. I can't think of a greater way to get our week off to a good start. I pray that you've been doing just that with us today. Just handed a note concerning our sister Etta Wright. Sister Wright attended here for many years, was really faithful and had one of the sweetest personalities of anybody that I think I've known. She moved to Abilene some time ago. She is presently in the ER at Abilene, having chest pains and breathing issues, a possible blood clot, a possible heart attack. Please keep our sister and good friend, Etta Wright, in your prayers. Uh, We hope that everything works out on this. Because of her faith in God, I feel confident things will. It's probably one of the most important questions Christians can ask. It's helpful to everybody, but it's certainly an important question for Christians to ask. What does Jesus desire in His church. What does Jesus desire in His church? After all, He's the one who purchased the church with His blood, Acts 20 and verse 28. He is the one to whom we're to give praise and glory as His people. Ephesians 3 verses 20 and 21. What does Jesus desire in His church? Thankfully, we're not at a loss there. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Because Revelation 2 and 3 and the letters to the seven churches are pretty much Jesus telling us what Jesus wants the church to be, what He desires the church to be. Throughout this old world... Until he returns. Let me show you. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The letter to the church at Ephesus. This letter reminds us that Jesus always desires that his church be a loving church. A loving church. 
that we love God and that we love people. So many good things are said about the church at Ephesus, but one thing that God has against it is something that should cause all of us to think. The Lord says, you have left your first love. Jesus desires that we ever be a loving church, that our love for God and our love for souls is genuine and real. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Jesus ever desires that His church, His people, be willing to suffer for His sake. The church at Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 through 11, that the people of God be willing to suffer for His sake. After all, we've been thinking an awful lot this morning about a crucified and risen Savior. What makes us think as servants of the Master that we will not have to deal with difficulty and suffering in our own lives? Peter would put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. If any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather let him glorify God in this behalf. God, Jesus, ever desires that His church be willing to suffer for His sake. Because there is a conflict going on with Satan and the world. And sometimes his people will be called upon to suffer. Look, if you will, at Revelation chapter 2. Notice verses 12 through 17. The church at Pergamum. The church at Pergamum. When you look at this particular church, it shows us that Jesus always desires his church to be a people of truth. A people of truth. Because, you see, at this congregation, they tolerated the doctrine of Balaam. And they also tolerated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And whatever all was involved in those two things, they were patently false. They were opposed to the doctrine, the teaching of Christ. You know what? God's people ought to be interested in truth. God's people ought to be interested in suffering for His sake should the need arise. And God's people ought to be interested in love. Now look, if you would, at Revelation chapter 2, 18 to the end of the chapter, the church of Thyatira. God ever desires, Jesus ever wants His church, His people, to be people of holiness. And what's going on at Thyatira amounts to spiritual adultery. And Jezebel and her teaching and her influence. Holiness means that God is a cut above That God is absolutely pure and that He has a holy hatred, a pure hatred for what is wrong, for what is sinful, for what's not right. God's people, God's church needs to have 
a desire to ever be more holy, to love what God loves, and to have a pure hatred for what is not right. Now keep looking. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6. What does God desire in the church? The church at Sardis. Not one word of commendation is given to the church as a whole at Sardis. In fact, some very strong terminology is used. You are dead. God always desires the church, His people, to be a people of life. Of life. There were things that appeared to show life at Sardis. But they really were nothing more than an outer shell of something that was dead within the church itself. A serious accusation from Jesus. Look, if you will, at Revelation chapter 3. Consider verses 7 through 13 with me. The church at Philadelphia. Only two of the seven churches were not told to repent of something. The first one, Smyrna. The second one, Philadelphia. And what I hope that you'll see that the Lord always desires in His people is mission. Mission. Or taking advantage wisely of opportunities that the Lord affords. Taking advantage wisely of the opportunities that the Lord affords. Do we do that individually as Christians? Do we do that as families who love Jesus? But think about this. The church at Philadelphia had Jesus say, I will give you a door, an open door, that no man can shut. They were mission-minded. They wanted to use the opportunities that they had to honor and show love for Christ. Now notice Revelation 3, 14 through 22. The church at Laodicea. What does Jesus desire in His church? Wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. Laodicea is a church with Jesus on the outside looking in. There were a lot of things going on at Laodicea. There was a lot of the trappings of religiosity. But Jesus was left out. And the chapter concludes with him knocking and saying, Please let me in to the church that I purchased with my life. There is a lack of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. It would seem to me, whether we're talking about A.D. 70, A.D. 90, 
or 2022, what Jesus desires in his church remains the same. They haven't changed. Let's focus this morning especially on Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. The letter to the church at Philadelphia. As many of you are aware, Philadelphia comes from two Greek expressions. That means brotherly love. The city of brotherly love. That's what... Philadelphia was known as. And it's because the king who began the city esteemed his older brother so highly that he thought that would be a great name for the city. Do we esteem one another highly? When you think of Philadelphia, it was known as the gateway to the east. It was on a major trade route. And as a matter of fact, when it was begun hundreds of years ago by the particular king that I've just alluded to, it was begun, the city was started not just to show his affection for his older brother, but to get the Greek language and culture east. To get the Greek language and culture to the east. As a matter of fact, Philadelphia became so good at getting the Greek culture and language to the east, it was called Little Athens. Little Athens. And when you think about Athens, it would be a center of Greek culture and philosophy and education. That would really be true with Philadelphia too. But this is more than just a lesson in history. But I think it's important to acquaint you a little with the city itself and its background. Whenever you study the seven churches of Asia, one of the things I want you to remember is this. Earthquakes. Earthquakes. The whole area was a place of really ginormous seismic activity. And in A.D. 17, an earthquake had occurred that basically leveled Philadelphia and some of the other churches that would later be addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. A lot of people would leave the city in the evening and go out to the fertile farmland. You can imagine because of seismic activity that the land could be quite fertile. But being in a walled city with buildings that were kind of high, that could fall in on you, a lot of people would leave the city at night. So it was a prosperous city, but one that always had a fear of when is the next big one going to come? When is the next big one going to come? So much so that a lot of people left with their family every night and went out to the suburbs, as we would say. When you look at the church at Philadelphia, get these three themes... Theme number one, get them, 
Remember them. Maybe jot them down in your Bible or, or at least think with me in your mind. When we talk about the church at Philadelphia, it did what it could with what it had. The church at Philadelphia doesn't have God make one criticism of it. Basically, Jesus says, you have done what you could with what you have. I can't imagine anything more wonderful for the Lord to say to any individual Christian or to any congregation than you have done all that you could, what you could, with what you have. That brings me to a second theme. And this is one that most people don't get, even if they've been studying the Bible for a long time. The Lord promises some of His richest blessings to perhaps the weakest of the seven churches. The Lord promises some of His richest blessings to perhaps the weakest of the seven churches. Notice the text. You have little power. You see that there, Brother Steve Taylor? You have little power. The idea is this wasn't the the place all the money folks went to. This wasn't the place where the wheelers and dealers went to. This wasn't the place in all likelihood that had all kinds of talent and big numbers and big budgets. But it was a congregation that recognized how desperately it needed Jesus. And the Lord reserves some of His choices, blessings, and promises for this church. Theme number three. This is the second longest of the seven letters. It's the second longest of the seven letters to these churches. Thyatira is longer. The church that lacked holiness. But now when we get here, he's talking about open doors and mission and opportunity to a group of people who outwardly you might not think was all that special, but in the eyes of Jesus, they were special indeed. They did what they could with what they had. And here's what you can remember. This letter beautifully blends, beautifully balances promises, and commendation. It beautifully balances promises and commendation. No word of criticism. It beautifully balances promises and commendation. Four items to consider in looking at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Look at the letter with me briefly. Consider first of all, The description of Jesus. Consider first of all the description of Jesus. It's so common to get into these seven churches and talk about their strengths and weaknesses and not talk about 
enough the Lord who bought them and saved them. And how each one of the letters begins with a very graphic, vivid description of Him. A church that is not focused on its Lord is a church that is not healthy. Doesn't matter what else it's doing. Now look at the description of Jesus. As he's described in the verse 7 in the first part of verse 8, he is called holy. Well, God is called holy, Isaiah 6 and verse 3 and 4. God's called holy, Revelation 4 and verse 8. Jesus is called holy. He's the Holy One of God, Mark 1 and verse 24. It's a statement found in the book of Isaiah of God, the Holy One, at least 20 times. And so what's being said is, if God the Father is holy, yes, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is holy too. He is holy. He is true. The same combination of words occur in Revelation 6.10. As people wait for God to act. God, you are holy, you are true, you are loyal, you are dependable. He's called faithful and true, Jesus is, in Revelation 19.11-21. One of my favorite ways that Jesus is described in the book of Revelation follows. Not only is He the holy and true, the true God, He has the key. The key of what? According to Revelation 3. The key of what? That's right. He has the key. He has the key, the key of the kingdom. He's the faithful witness who has the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1 verse 18, who has the key of the kingdom. He has authority. He's the ruler. He's in charge. And the one who is really the ruler and is in charge and is the king of kings is the one who is in the midst of all the churches and knows what all of them are going through and who knows what this church and what you personally are going through even now. Revelation 1.13 I am glad that Jesus is ever-present and that He's not an absentee landlord. He's always seeing and He always cares. And notice this about Jesus in the description. He opens doors and no one can shut them. How glad we ought to be that God cares and provides for His people. Our God opens doors nobody can shut. Our God shuts doors and when He shuts them, nobody, no matter how big they think they are, can open them. It's an expression we use a lot in our lives. It just seemed that there was an open door for me, an opportunity. No matter how hard I tried, it seemed the door was shut and I just wasn't going to get in. 
to have this opportunity. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not lack for open doors when we want to be his people and live for him. And here's one I love. It begins in Revelation 3.8. I know your works, Jesus says. I know your deeds. You ever feel unappreciated sometimes or underappreciated? Revelation 3, 7 and 8 are for us when we feel that way. The church in Philadelphia may have seemed small. They only had a little power. But they recognized that they had a great God. And God says to them, I know your deeds. God does not forget the good that is done. Hebrews 6, 10 through 12. Consider number two. This item. We've considered the description of Jesus. Now look at verses 8 through 10 with me and consider the commendation of Jesus. The commendation of Jesus to this church. First of all, he says, though you have little power, that's a fact, not a criticism. He says, behold... Behold, it's the most common command in the book about 35 times. Look, see this. Get the picture. Things are not as they seem. You may seem to have a little power, but you have a great and awesome God and you've relied on me. And he goes on to say, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a big commendation, wouldn't you say? You have kept my word and have not denied my name. And because of that, promise. Commendation, blessing, promise. I will present you, I will give you an open door. An open door for mission. An open opportunity. Think about it. The city of Philadelphia was built to spread the Greek language and culture. And Jesus says, as a small church that has a big faith in me, I'm going to use you as a launching pad to get my name out and my gospel out so people can come to me. That was Philadelphia. That kind of opportunity. You know what? I wonder today what most churches would do if God said that to them. First of all, I suspect we'd have to pick elders up off of the ground. If God said, I will give you an open door for mission, open opportunities to magnify my name and to bring souls closer to me. Secondly, I think that you'd have to pick up the preachers. Because we think of ourselves as plugging along. And God says, You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. You've acknowledged me. And that's what matters. And so I'm going to give you an an opportunity, a mission, to be able to impact more people's lives as you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Secondly, notice this. 
And I love this one. Look at verses 8 through 10. They will know I have loved you. There's a commendation. I have loved you. You have kept the faith and have not denied my name. I have loved you. And what the promise is, is this. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan, Jews, it's interesting that in the two churches that are only complimented and not criticized by Jesus in any way. Both of them were having to deal with persecution from some of the very people that should have embraced the gospel the most, the Jews. And he's saying, you know, you may not have had the door to the synagogue open to you anymore, but the one who has the key of the kingdom has opened heaven's blessings to you, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but Jesus says, I'm going to make them come to you and they will fall down at your feet and they will acknowledge that I love you. I have loved you. In the Old Testament... Israel was fond of saying, God loves us. We are His chosen. But in the New Testament, it is people, whether Jew or Gentile, whatever their culture, whatever their background, who come to Him in faith and love and obedience that are Christians. And they're going to know that I've loved you. Part of me wants to believe that that happened historically. That the time came when Jews, part of a synagogue there, realized how wrong they were to persecute Christians and to make life hard for Christians, and they came to believe in the gospel themselves. According to Acts 6 and verse 7, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith back then. Well, it could happen again with people, surely historically. But whether it happened... Here, there will come a time when every person that has ever persecuted and hurt the bride of Christ will realize how much Jesus loves his bride. Can I get an amen? And sometimes the one who hurts the bride is a sheep. It's one thing for a wolf to hurt the bride. It's another thing for the sheep to hurt the bride. Continue with me as we work through this passage. Notice what he says. He says, by way of compliment... You have patiently endured. Now here's the promise. The compliment, the promise. I will keep you in the hour of trial that will come upon the whole earth. 
I will keep you in the hour of trial. Why? Because you patiently endured. You've held to my word. You've not denied my name. I will keep you in the hour of trial. Now, Kurt, what I want you to understand, brother, that won't make us exempt from trials in life, but it is the assurance that God will see us through every single issue. Every single problem. Christians are not exempted from trial, James 1, 2. Count it all joy when you encounter manifold trials. But we are promised that He will see us through those trials and that victory awaits. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. James 1 verse 12. Now notice this thirdly as we move on. Consider the exhortation of the Lord... Look, if you will, at verse 11. Consider the exhortation of the Lord. I am coming soon in judgment upon those that hurt the bride. I am coming soon to comfort and encourage those who belong to the body of Christ. Much like what I was talking about earlier, this may well have been historical, rooted in history, the events of history. But one thing's for sure, it's rooted in eternal truth. The Lord will come again. And when He comes, He will judge and judge righteously. Everything may not be settled completely to one's satisfaction in this life, but I can assure you, He is coming. And He will deal with things. The next statement, the exhortation, it's so important to get here. Please mark it in your Bibles, verse 11, because it is the strongest imperative in the entire section, in the entire letter to the Philadelphians. Hold fast to what you have. You have kept the faith. You have not denied my name. You've patiently endured... Hold fast to what you have so that no one take your crown. Don't stop doing what you've been doing, Jesus is saying. Hold on for dear life. And you know what they're thinking. Well, Lord, we don't have much. We don't have a great deal of money. We don't have a great deal of numbers. We don't have a great deal of clout. And the Lord says, what makes you great in my eyes is that you know that and how much you need me. May the church learn today that message. Hold on to what you have so that no one take your crown. Fourth and lastly, consider this item from verse 12, 
rich, rich it is. Consider the promise of our Lord. Consider the promise of our Lord. To him that overcomes, to the one that conquers, that word conquers or overcomes, found 17 times in a 22-chapter book. If we overcome sin and Satan and self, we can come over, go over and be with the Lord forever. And then notice a quartet of repeated words. My God, my God, my God, my God. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Circle that word pillar, brothers and sisters and friends. A pillar from an architectural perspective is crucial to stability. A pillar. The church is the pillar crucial to stability and ground of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 But that's not the only thing that pillar can mean. And it's true in our life too. In our language, even now. In Galatians 2.9, Paul talked about prominent people in the early church and he referred to them as pillars. It's not unusual even now to hear somebody referred to as a pillar of the community. A pillar of the congregation, a long-time faithful member. So the word can have to do with prominence and it can have to do with stability. And God says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Notice what he goes on to say. And you will not go out, no, not by any means. Here's the promise. He's promising this little church at Philadelphia that believed in such a great God. Because you have kept faith and not denied my name and you patiently endured and you've looked to me through thick and thin, I promise you if you continue in this, You'll be with God forever. You'll be in the presence of God forever. And notice he says, the temple of my God. But for people that read Revelation all the way through in Revelation 21, there is no temple. And I'll tell you why. Because when we are in the presence of God forever in eternity, there will be no need of a temple. Being in His presence was what the temple was all about in the first place. And He goes on to say, I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. My own new name. 
if we let the rest of the book comment, it seems that the name could well be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19.16 To have mine written on me by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What more could anybody really want? To be in His presence forever. Now think about this. Even on the best of occasions, loved ones leave us. Even on the best of occasions, difficulties arise. But in the presence of God eternally, loved ones will never leave and enemies and problems will never arise. Can you wrap your head around that one? And of course we can't. But man, I long to experience it. How about you? Amen. Where I can always be with the loved ones and never depart from them and where nothing, nothing that is an enemy or defiled can enter in. God has put the keep out notice. What a letter. What hope. And you may be struggling. You may be struggling with your health, your life, your job, your family. But I believe with all my heart, every person needs to think hard and long about Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia. Thank you for listening. We're about to stand and sing our song of encouragement. Can you be willing to admit your own inadequacy? Can you swallow your pride and say, I am little, but He is great. And I need His great salvation made possible through Jesus. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, one responds to what God has done in Christ. Don't delay responding to Him. He's too great, and we are too needy. Won't you come as we stand and sing?